I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 is where we'll be together this morning. A few years ago, Amy and I had the opportunity to to, uh, take a trip to England and Scotland, a beautiful part of the world, and uh, spent a few days in the city of London where I learned a lot more about uh, something I'd read about in history books, and that is the bombing of London in World War II. Between uh, September 1940 and May 1941, a period of about 10 months, uh, Nazi Germany blitzed, uh, uh, bombed the city of London, trying to harm as many people as possible, of course, and, and really trying to discourage the hearts of the British people to keep them from fighting. And those attacks had devastating effects. 43,000 casualties, 139,000 uh, were wounded. And of course, you know, you've seen pictures of the British people who were, were driven underground, went in the subway system, the tube there, and yet they, they never lost heart. They, they endured all of the, the attacks and the, the bombs that were sent their way, uh, of course, under the, the leadership of that champion of freedom, uh, Winston Churchill. And there's a very iconic photo that was taken in the aftermath of the bombing of London. And I want you to see the picture. It's a picture of St. Paul's Cathedral which unbelievably uh, was untouched during the bombing. You can see the the dark, gloomy clouds that just hang over the city. And yet there, in the sunlight, St. Paul's stands resolute. And this is the picture that comes to mind when I look at Matthew chapter 27, because in this chapter you have an attack, if you will, by the kingdom of darkness striking its blows on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Matthew chapter 27, we're in the final hours of the life of Jesus, and you just see in this chapter blow after blow, attack after attack, and there's a dark, gloomy cloud that hangs over the events of this chapter, and yet there stands Jesus, resolute, in the midst of the attacks, in the darkness, as He heads down the road to the cross. So I want us to look together at the dark events of Matthew chapter 27. But as we look at these events, I want you this morning to see light. I want you to see hope. I want you to wrap your your mind around some truths that I believe will set your heart free. So let's look together. I'm going to read chapter 27 verses 1 through 31, and then we're going to come back and talk about some of these verses. Chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, it says, When daybreak came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And after tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So these two verses really frame what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. It casts that dark cloud uh, over Matthew 27. Verse 3, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse. He's remorseful because as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. So now he's full of regret and remorse, shame and guilt. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, it's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it is blood money. 
They conferred together and bought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And this is a quote from Jeremiah. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now the scene shifts in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And Jesus answered, you say so. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. And then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they're testifying against you? But he didn't answer on even one charge. So that the governor was astounded, quite amazed. Now, the scene shifts again in verse 15. At the festival, the, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a, a prisoner they wanted. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it that you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was because of envy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent words to him, Hath nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they answered, Barabbas. Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus, who's called Christ? And they all answered, crucify him. And he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, right? There's a sense that the crowd is just being worked up into a frenzy here. He took some water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. Then one of the most startling, shocking verses anywhere in the Bible, verse 25, all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. One more scene shift in verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. And they stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Well, there's certainly a dark cloud hovering over this chapter. The story, as it progresses through these verses, is fairly straightforward. Verses 1 and 2 frames the attack on Jesus. Verses 3 through 10, Jesus is betrayed by a friend, Judas. In verses 11 through 14, Jesus is falsely accused before Pilate. In verses 15 through 26, Jesus is wrongfully condemned in the place of Barabbas. And then in verses 27 through 31, Jesus is cruelly mocked by the soldiers. 
There's a lot going on in these 31 verses. And there's a way that we could read this text and just simply focus on the, the historical significance of these events. In fact, that's a common way to read the Gospels. Um, Prince Philip said once that Jesus might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. Some people read this story that way, that Jesus was just a peasant revolutionary, cruelly treated by the Romans, and it's just a matter of historical record. And you could get that kind of viewpoint in any secular uh, campus in America today. But what's happening here is more than merely historical, right? It's, it's not less than historical. These events did happen, just as the gospel writers record, but there's something more here. There's more than history happening. I don't want you to miss the theological significance and weight of what's happening in these verses. As we look through this text, there are some, some great gospel truths, some great gospel pictures that I, I believe will refresh your hearts. And so I wish that I had time this morning to just unpack every single one that's in Matthew chapter 27. I don't have that or we would be here until Easter. And so I'm just going to pick and choose this morning, all right? I'm going to take three uh, great gospel truths that we see from, from these verses. And the first one is found in verses 11 through 14. As we see Jesus standing before Pilate, and the text says, Jesus stood before the governor. He asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you say so. Now, verse 12, notice this, while he was being accused, notice that word accused by the chief priests and the elders. So just picture in your mind the scene here. Here's Jesus, an innocent man standing on trial before Pilate. And this is a sham of a trial. It's a kangaroo court. And you know that because Matthew chapter 26 said that the, the, the chief priests and the elders, they had to go out and find false witnesses. So they're going out and finding people who are bringing false accusation, false witnesses, and there's Jesus standing on the one side and the chief priests and the elders standing on the other side, pointing their finger at Jesus, leveling all kinds of, of accusations at him. All of which are false, except for this one, that he is the king of the Jews. That's the only one that he answers. He says, yeah, you said it. But everything else, as he's being accused, he doesn't answer. And Matthew wants you to pay attention to that fact because in verse 12 and verse 14, he actually repeats this two times. Verse 12, he says, while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he didn't answer. And then in verse 14, he didn't answer him on even one charge. So Matthew's just trying to get you to zero in on this picture of Jesus standing there under false accusation and yet saying nothing in his defense. Boy, that's very different than what would have happened if I had been standing on trial that day. Does anybody in the house enjoy being falsely accused? Anybody? No? Maybe you've experienced that where someone has accused you of something that you didn't do, or maybe they, this happens maybe more frequently, they accuse you of having a motive that you didn't. They say, this is why you did that. And you know your motive is this, right? It's pure uh, but they give you a false motive and all of us want to, to defend ourselves, right? Every one of us has an inner lawyer that wants to stand and come to our defense. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
No, the one who was truly innocent of any of these charges, who was truly a righteous man. In fact, Pilate's wife, later on in this text, says, I've had a dream about him. He is a righteous man. Here is a righteous man who doesn't deserve any of this accusation. And yet he is willing to stand defenseless, not answering the attackers, not responding to the accusation. He just stands there and receives the accusation. That is quite a contrast with another verse in your New Testaments. And I want you actually to stick your finger in Matthew 27 and and flip over to Romans chapter 8. Because I want you to see in Romans chapter 8 something that if you are in Christ is true of you. Romans chapter 8, all right? So get in your mind, Matthew 27, this innocent man standing under false accusation. But now look at Romans chapter 8, and I want you to focus in on uh, verses 31 through 33. Romans 8, of course, is one of the most beautiful expositions of the good news of Jesus, right? These, if you are in Christ, Romans 8 is just a, a, a description of what is true of you. Look at verse 31. Romans 8, 31, it says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And you know what the answer to that is, church, right? God's for you. Who can be against you? What's the answer? No one, right? Exactly. If God is for us, and by the way, God is for you. In Christ, God is for you. Then no one and nothing can stand against you. Verse 32 God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? He's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gave you the greatest gift he can possibly give, Christ, his son, then there's nothing else that he won't give you. He'll give you everything in Christ. But now look at verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Now, if the answer in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer to that question is what? No one. Now, Paul is intending for us to answer this question, verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against one of God's elect? And the answer is? Now, hold on for a second. I mean, you're right. That's what Paul is trying to get you to do. But can we just pause here for a moment and just think about this statement? Because the reality is, Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? The the truth is, any number of people can accuse any number of us of any number of things. In fact, it's interesting, the word accusation in Romans 8.33 literally is a legal charge, a legal charge. Who can bring a legal charge against one of God's elect? And of course, that's a reference to the Old Testament law, right? God's law. Paul is saying, who can bring a charge of law-breaking? The reality is, every single one of us has broken God's law, right? Every single one of us. If you just take the Ten Commandments and we could go through all 10 of them, but let's just take a couple of them. Number one, the first commandment, have no other gods before me. 
first commandment really frames the rest of the commandments. There should be nothing that takes God's place in your life. Who among us could honestly say that we have only and always ever put God first in our life? Be careful to raise your hand. Because I would say that probably all of us, not probably, I'll just say all of us have broken that one. There have been times when we have put other things first in our life before God. If you continue on the commandments, right? Uh, Honor your father and mother, okay? Has anybody kept that one perfectly? Have we always honored mom and dad like we should? No. Kids are like, "Mm -mm, nope. You're like, well, at least I haven't murdered anybody. Right? One of the commandments says, you shall not kill. I've not killed anybody. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if you have anger in your heart towards someone, in God's eyes, you have committed murder in the heart. And those of you who've driven in Houston traffic, you know what that's like, right? <laughs> You're mad at somebody who cuts you off. There's some murder happening in the heart. Jesus says, if you've ever been angry, you're, in God's eyes, it's like you're a murderer. Right? How about you shall not commit adultery? Maybe you say, I've never committed adultery. Well, Jesus says, if you look with lust towards another person, then in your heart, you've committed adultery. In God's eyes, you have committed adultery. How about you shall not bear false witness? That means not only that you don't tell a lie, but that you always tell the truth. Who among us could say that we've always only ever told the truth? So think about it. I've just talked about three or four of those We've not put God first all the time. We've we not always honored our father and mother. We've, we've, we've lied. All of us, we, we could talk about do not steal. We've all taken things. We, we've committed murder in the heart, adultery in the heart, right? In other words, if you look at the standard of God's law and you look at the, that our, our lives, who can bring a charge against us? The answer is any number of people could bring a charge against any number of us. And you know what would happen in a court of law? We would be declared guilty. Unless you're in Christ. And that's Paul's point. If you are in Christ and God is for you, then who can come against you? The answer is no one or nothing. If you're in Christ... Who can bring a legal charge against God's elect? And the answer in Christ is no one. Even though we could be accused of guilt, even though if you look at God's law and the standard of God's law and you look at our lives, we could say we are, we are dead guilty. If you are in Christ, here's what Paul's saying, even though someone might charge you, the charges won't stick. Because in Christ, you are not guilty. And that's, folks, that's only good news if you understand that without Christ, you are guilty. It's only good news if you realize without Christ, the amount of guilt you actually have, then the cross becomes actual good news because because of the work of Jesus. You move from someone who is guilty and could be accused rightfully under the law to someone who the charges won't stick. (laughs) Because the perfectly innocent righteous one took the judgment and the penalty for those of us who are guilty. Now, think about the contrast of Matthew 27 and Romans chapter 8. In in Matthew chapter 27, you have an innocent man who's being accused of guilt, even though he's not guilty. In Romans 8, you have guilty people 
who won't be accused of their guilt because they've been declared not guilty. Matthew 27, Jesus stands under accusation even though he's not guilty. Romans 8, even though we are guilty, Paul says, you don't have to stand under accusation. Do you get the connection between the two? And here's the deal. The reason that I, even though I'm guilty, will never have to stand under accusation is because Jesus, though he was innocent, did stand under accusation. In other words, if he had not endured this sham of a trial, if he had not been willing to stand under false accusation, he couldn't have done the work necessary to remove our accusation. In other words, Jesus was accused so that you don't have to be. Now, if y'all were Pentecostals, you'd be running up and down these aisles. But you're Baptists, you're just staring at me like cows staring at a new gate. Listen to me. Look, all right, now listen, here's the deal. I'm just going to sit on this point for another minute now. Do you know that one of Satan's names in the Bible is the accuser? The accuser. Satan loves to point his bony finger in our face and remind us of our guilt. That's what he does. He's an accuser, and you've experienced that. You've heard that whisper of the enemy that tells you about your guilt, that reminds you of your sin, that uh, throws your shame in your face. That is Satan's work. That is Satan's business. He loves to accuse you. The Bible says that because Jesus, though innocent, was willing to receive accusation as guilty, then Even though we are guilty, we won't ever have to stand under accusation. Jesus took our accusation so you'd never have to be accused. So when Satan comes to you in the middle of that dark night of the soul and points his bony finger in your face and reminds you of your past, you can what? Remind him of his future. When Satan reminds you of your guilt... When he points his finger and accuses you of your sin, you can remind him, oh yeah, that's true. Without Christ, I am guilty. Without Christ, I do stand accused, but I'm in Christ and Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and yet he washed it white as snow. And so here's the picture and here's the point. Jesus received our accusation. Don't miss it. But there's a second truth in this text. Not only did Jesus receive our accusation, the text is also going to teach us that Jesus took our condemnation. And we see that in the next scene in verses 15 through 26 as we see Jesus and Barabbas. Now, we're we're introduced to Barabbas in verse 15. It tells us that at the festival, this is the, the festival of Passover, right? You've got a bunch of Jewish people who've come from all over Israel to Jerusalem to celebrate this. It says the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. So we have a very similar custom in our day and time, right? When the the president of the United States is about to step away from office, usually there's just a list of of presidential pardons. He'll he'll give amnesty uh, and release to, to multiple prisoners before he leaves. Well, that's kind of the custom going on here. And so at that time, in verse 16, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, the truth is we don't 
we today don't know a lot about Barabbas. We know his name means, uh, Bar-Abbas means son of the father. That's what his name means. We also know that he was a murderer. Uh, The other gospel accounts tell us uh, this about him. We also know he was a revolutionary who fought against the government of Rome. So when you think about Barabbas, I want you to picture kind of like a a backwoods... (laughs) Thank you for that. A backwoods kind of anti-government, you know, if it was in the modern day, he probably has a doomsday shelter. Maybe a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, hates the government, and every now and then he'll come up for air and come up for light and go carry out a political assassination and then go back into the woods. That's Barabbas, okay? There was an entire sect of the Jewish people that would essentially carry out terroristic acts against the Romans. They had their own division of assassins. They had special knives that they would slip into crowds. They would use the the dagger, kill a Roman official, and then slip out. And Barabbas is one of these guys. So he's an anti-government revolutionary, but he's been caught. And when you get caught for being against the government of Rome, there is one sentence. The sentence is death. And the Romans would try to make a very public display of those who had come up against their authority. A guy like Barabbas is going to be crucified. So just now picture this scene here. Put yourself in Barabbas's shoes for a minute. You've been caught. You've been in jail. Now you're just waiting. You know, dead to rights, you have been caught. You're guilty. And what you deserve is death by crucifixion. That is what's going to happen. So imagine on a particular morning, a Roman soldier comes up, comes up to the cell, you know, clinks his cup against the, the cell door and calls Barabbas' name. And you know, if you're Barabbas, your, your number has been called. Uh, today is the day. You're, you're guilty. You've been sentenced. You know you're headed to crucifixion. And now your name has been called. It's time to go. Imagine the surprise then. When, if you're Barabbas, you walk out, you're guilty of murder, you deserve death, you're heading to the cross. But to your surprise, there's another man who's led away to the cross while your chains are unlocked and you are set free. Do you see the picture here? We have a guilty man set free because an innocent man took the condemnation he deserved. It's interesting. Here we have the actual son of the father taking the place for a son of a father, Barabbas. We have a picture here in this exchange with Barabbas, folks, of what the cross was all about. The cross was an exchange of the innocent for the guilty. And on the cross, Jesus takes the condemnation that we deserved. Charles Spurgeon, I've told you, said you can summarize the gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. Amy and I were taking a trip to Washington, D.C. a number of years ago, and uh, we, it was time to come home, and our kids, four kids at home, little kids with a babysitter, and we were very eager, ready to come see him, and so we show up to uh, the airport there and come up to the counter, and the person at the counter said, well, we're so sorry, uh, somehow we have overbooked your flight. And so one of you is going to have to stay here and hope to get a flight tomorrow. Well, that did not go over well. (laughs) 
And one of you can go, one of you has to stay. And so we're, you know, we're worried about what's going to happen with our kids. We've already been missing them. We want to go home and see them. Now one of us is going to have to stay. Well, there was a sweet lady who came up to the counter and she said, hey, you know what? I don't have any plans tomorrow. I'd be happy to stay. And can you give my ticket to one of them? And that's exactly what she did. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you wonder what the cross is all about, it's, it's about that. It is about substitution. It is about someone who steps up and takes your place for you. Barabbas was guilty, deserved death, and yet went free because someone was willing to receive the condemnation that he deserved. That's what Jesus has done for us. It's what the cross of Jesus is about. Jesus taking our place taking our condemnation so that we can be set free. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 says that through one man's obedience, many were made righteous. That's what we have in Jesus. One man who is obedient to the point of death on a cross so that the many who were guilty can be made righteous. Amen? Here's a third and final gospel picture that I want you to see in these verses. And that's in verses 27 through 31 as you see Jesus being beaten by the soldiers. So the governor's soldiers take Jesus and they strip him. They dress him in a scarlet robe. Now, this is, scarlet is not the color of royalty. Purple is. So this is, a, this is a mockery of his claims to kingship. And they twisted together a crown made up of thorns. Now, when you picture this in your mind, don't think about the thorns that we have here, like on a rose bush that are very small. If you've been to Israel, you've seen the size of thorns. These are like three to five inches long. So this is, this is just a wicked thorn. And they form the thorns together to make a crown and they put it on his head. They place a staff in his right hand like a fake scepter. And then they kneel before him and mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. And you ought to put king of the Jews in quote marks, okay? Because this is, this is a mockery. They're saying, hail, so, so-called king of the Jews. And then they spat on him and then they take the staff from him and they begin to hit him on the head. CSB says they kept hitting him on the head. It's trying to translate that idea of this is a continuous action. They're just continually beating that crown of thorns into Jesus' head. And then they strip him again, put his own clothes. They lead him away to be crucified. I, I, want, I want you to focus here. There's so many things we could talk about in this paragraph. But I want you to focus here on the crown that the soldiers place on Jesus' head. Why a crown? What's the crown about? I think uh, certainly on its face, this is a very cruel method of inflicting pain uh, as they beat this crown onto Jesus' head. It's also a definite mockery and rejection of Jesus' authority as they do all of these things in jest. But I think there's something more happening here. Have you ever wondered why it was a crown of thorns? I want you to think about that and think about the the theological significance of this because I don't think it's any accident that that Matthew tells us it was a crown made up of thorns. And to see the the theological significance to this, you need to think back to the Garden of Eden. So I want you to rewind in your mind all the way back to the book of Genesis. I want you to think about the very beginning when God 
creates the world. He creates a perfect world unmarred by sin. It was a world without thorns. Can you imagine that? Someone has put it this way, that the first rose God ever created was a world without thorns. It's a beautiful world, unmarred by sin. But all of that changes when Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God. They sin against holy God. And all of a sudden, sin enters into this good world that God had made. And so God, because he is just and holy and righteous, cannot let sin and evil and injustice go undealt with. And so he begins to curse the world because of sin. I want you to look at that curse. Just stick your finger in in Matthew and flip back to Genesis chapter 3. There's something significant here. It's easy to to miss. Genesis chapter 3 is where God is giving out the curses for sin to the serpent. He tells the serpent, you know, you're going to slither on your belly for the rest of your days. And he makes a promise to the serpent that one day a descendant of Eve is going to come and will crush the skull of the serpent. And by the way, Genesis 3.15, that's the very first. If you, if you want to know the first time you can ever read about the gospel in the Bible, it's Genesis 3.15. God makes a promise there's going to come a serpent crusher one day. And then to the woman, he says, okay, your curse is that you're going to have pain in childbirth. But then to the man... Notice the curse here in Genesis 3 and uh, verse 17. He said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded, do not eat from it. The ground is, what does it say there? It's cursed because of you and you will eat from it by means of painful uh, work all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. Okay, so let's just stop right there, and I want you to think about this for a minute. The symbol of the curse of sin is the thorn. The world God makes is a world without thorns. Can you imagine coming up to rose bushes and just smelling them, and you have the fragrance and the beauty, and you never have to worry about a thorn? My my mom grows uh, rose bushes, and they're absolutely beautiful. But here's the thing. When you come to a rose bush, and you lean in close, and you try to draw that rose to yourself to smell it, What happens when you reach down there and grab the stem? A little prick, right? And that's to be a representative. It's to be a reminder of the curse of sin. Every time you see a thorn, it's a reminder that this is not the way that God made the world. The thorn is the emblem of the curse of sin. God put something into the world that was not there in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, you had, you had flowers, you had trees, you had shrubs, you had all of these plants, no thorns. Because mankind rebels, God says, I'm going to, I'm going to cause thorns and thistles to grow. And every time you see a thorn, it's to be a reminder of the curse of sin. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 8 refers to thorns in this very same way. You can see it here on the screens. It says, if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be what? 
cursed. You see, so there's an association that happens in the, in the Bible between the curse and the thorn. So don't miss what's happening in Matthew chapter 27. It is no accident that the crown is a crown of thorns because when Jesus wore that crown of thorns, he was in a very real way bearing the curse of our sin. Think about it. That which was a sign of our sin was placed over his head. Now, those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament, there, there should be all kinds of imagery and symbolism that begins to float around in your mind. One of the images that comes to my mind is, is, is the image of the scapegoat in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 16, right? You know when in the life of Israel, Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats that would be taken. One would be killed slaughtered, sacrificed for the sins of the people, blood uh, applied to the altar. But then there was another goat, a scapegoat, and the priest would put his hands on the head of that scapegoat and pronounce the guilt of all the people. And symbolically, this, this was all pictures in the Old Testament pointing us forward to the cross. Symbolically, that high priest was placing the guilt of the people on the head of another. And that scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness, a picture of our sins being removed from us, something that would be fulfilled one day on the cross of Calvary. In this moment, as a crown of thorns representative of our sin and guilt placed on the head of Jesus, where Jesus would remove our guilt once and for all. Adrian Rogers put it this way, that Jesus wore the crown because he bore the curse. That's what's happening with the crown of thorns. Jesus is wearing the crown of thorns because he's bearing the curse of sin. I told you last week that through the work of Jesus, that cup of God's judgment is no longer yours to drink. I'm here to tell you this morning that the curse of sin is no longer yours to bear because Jesus bore it for you. Think about it. Every Everything that is sad in our world, everything that is broken in our world, uh, every hospital that you visit and every funeral that you attend and every family that is broken apart and every human conflict in history is a result of sin in this world. And that thorn represents the ugliness of sin. It reminds us of the curse of sin. And Jesus took it on his own head. What, what a contrast with, with the way our, our world works. Because, you know, I think about in some of the great works of literature, uh, you know, if you, you have sometimes like magicians and I'm thinking Harry Potter here, all right, for the nerds in the house. This one's for you. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're Harry Potter and you don't like someone, you can curse them. That's pretty convenient. You know, just to be able to place a curse on somebody or remove a curse off of somebody. And that's, that's how it works, right? You don't like somebody, you just curse them. It's pretty easy. Which, you know, missionaries tell us about this. Witch doctors do this all the time in the mission field. If a missionary comes into town and a tribal witch doctor doesn't like them, the tribal witch doctor goes to their hut and places a curse on it. It's not often that you see someone willing to take a curse for someone. Easy to place a curse on someone. But the God of the Bible is the God who loves his people so much he's willing to take the curse himself. That's what Jesus did for you on the cross. He received our accusation. He took our condemnation 
and he bore our curse. He bore our curse. All the death and judgment for our sin, the curse that we deserved, Jesus bore for us. It's why we sing that great song at Christmas time, Joy to the World. Have you ever thought about the lyrics? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the truth, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we will one day, once again, live in a world without thorns and a world without the curse. Don't miss Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3. Right in, in the creation account, the garden story, a world without thorns, yet sin mars this perfect world. Thorns enter, a curse is on the world, but Jesus takes that curse on his own head and here's what happens in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3. It says that there's a, another tree in the new heavens and the new earth. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations and there will no longer be any curse. So you have a day to look forward to. A day when the world is no longer marred by the curse. When you no longer have to deal with things like cancer, broken marriages, war. You won't have to go to another funeral. Revelation tells us death will be no more. Sin, tears, no more. All because Jesus was willing to wear the crown of thorns. Amen? You bow your heads with me. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, let me just encourage you to think about two of the individuals in this story. Judas and Barabbas. What a contrast between those two men. Judas, one whose guilt drove him to self-destruction and ultimately death. And then Barabbas, one who was guilty and yet was delivered from death and found life because of one who took his condemnation for him. If you're here today and you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, let me just encourage you this morning to look to the one who received your accusation. Look to the one who took your condemnation. Look to the one who bore your curse. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. As you leave this place in just a moment as we close our service, if you go out to the lobby, there will be decision prayer partners who can sit down with you and explain how to receive this good gift of what Jesus has done for you. We pray that you would do that today. If you're here today and you know Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've received the blessing of the good thing God has done for you in Christ, then praise Him for it. Celebrate Him for it. Give Him everything that you are and everything that you have. If, if our God was willing to do this for you, how much should we be willing to do for him? What would it look like to live a Christ-centered life this week because of one who was willing to wear a crown of thorns for you? Jesus, we are so thankful for your work for us, that you were willing to stand defenseless and take false accusations so that we would never have to be accused. 
Jesus, you took our rightful condemnation, died the death we deserve to die. We thank you for it. Thank you for bearing the curse of sin for us. We praise your name. All God's people said amen.